The sermon text reading is from Ezekiel 43, verses 1 through 7. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters. And the earth shone with his glory. And the vision I saw was just like the vision that I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And just like the vision that I had seen by the Chebar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing beside me, I heard one speaking to me out of the temple. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel forever. And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you for choosing to uh, be here instead of the World Cup final. Um, yeah, I know. You know, some of you know I played soccer my whole life, and so it is killing me that uh, they, you know, why didn't they talk with me first? And so if, if I do hear a yes, you know, in the middle of my sermon, I'll assume it's about me and the sermon, not uh, that someone just scored a goal. Really welcome. Glad that you're here with us today. And, and if you're here with us for the first time, we have been in a series called The Light of Glory, our Advent series this year, looking at glory each week. And if I had to choose a word, really, I think a word that really best describes what is Christmas, it's that word. Remember, in, uh, in the Luke's telling the story, where are the angels? They're in the heavens. What are saying? Glory to God in the highest, right? And as we get to Christmas Eve service, we'll, we'll come back to that. But what I've been doing is looking at a series of passages that don't exactly sound like Christmas, do they? But by the end of the sermon, I, my hope is I can convince you that this is screaming Christmas. That this passage about a temple along a canal in Babylon is actually about Christmas. Okay, Scott, I'm not sure how you're going to get there, but I'll listen. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to talk about a glory that is gone, a glory that disappears in the story, then a glory that returns. And as a result of it returning, a glory actually that we can enjoy. And one of the things that we're going to see is that this story from, from so many thousands of years ago, it's a lot about our story, and ultimately it's about Christmas, as we're going to see. So, jump in here with me, and we're going to look at first thing, and that is that the glory that disappeared, that went away. Now, I realize that you probably are not that familiar with Ezekiel, and part of that is because I've never preached, actually, in 17 years from the book of Ezekiel. So, let me give you a little bit of background here, so bear with me here. So, the story of glory is the story of Israel. If you could time travel back to the time of Israel and say, hey, what, what is your identity? What makes you you as a people? They would say it's the temple. They would say, it's, why the temple? Well, because it's the glory of God. It's the epicenter. It's where we find our identity. Right? And so the story actually goes back to the Exodus event. And so as they were coming out of Exodus, excuse me, as they were exiting uh, from Egypt, and they were uh, going through the Dead Sea, or the Red Sea, I should say, and then on the way into the wilderness, what was leading them? It was the glory of God. It's, it's fire by night and, and, of course, by a cloud during the daytime. And then they, they, they are instructed by God to form a tabernacle, sort of like a temple on wheels. And so the glory of God would descend and, and rest upon the tabernacle. And, and as it would lift and move, they would lift and move with them, pulling up the stakes and going with them. And, of course, the story gets all the way to the promised land. And there's King David, right? And then King David's son was who? Solomon. And what is Solomon too? The temple. 
That is His work, is the temple. And there's this consecration ceremony and the, and the glory of God descends into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. And this is, this is the epicenter of who they are, which leads us now to this passage. Because it's not about that. Elvis has left the building. Well, God has left the building, is what we find out. And, and so this is important to understand. There are three things really what the temple stood for. First, it was, uh, it was the, the soles of my feet. You heard that there in verse 7. This is God's dwelling place. And so the temple becomes the physical manifestation of God's revelation, God's glory on earth. And so this is where God lives, as it were. But this, secondly, the temple represents that He has chosen a people. And so He is dwelling among them. I will be your God and you will be my people, he says earlier in the Old Testament. And then thirdly, it's a sign of holiness. Where is the presence of God? In the Holy of Holies. And, and so the, the, the temple had been consecrated. It was sacred. And, and, and much as we think about worship, it's a place of holiness. And so three things there. It's a, it's a place of God's dwelling. It's a place that they identify God has, has chosen us. We belong to Him. And then as a reflection of that, we practice holiness with our God. So what went wrong? Disobedience left and right. No sooner are they out of Egypt than they're saying, we want another God, the golden calf story. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, right? And then one thing after another, then after the time of Solomon, one king after another, and there's a split in the kingdom and, and the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, one story after another of disobedience, both among the people and among the kings, worshiping other gods. And finally, you know, Jesus, excuse me, Jesus, God the Father has sent one prophet after another saying, no more. If you keep this up, I'm leaving. Uh, you're going to be in exile. You're going to be a conquered people. And they don't listen, of course. And where is Ezekiel when he's having these visions? The Chebar Canal, which is in Babylon. The Babylonians have conquered Jerusalem. The prophecy has come true. It's been fulfilled. And now the Israelites are, are on the shores in exile. They're captives. They, their temple has been destroyed. Back in Jerusalem, they are a conquered people. They've lost a sense of identity. They're living in shame, after all. And they're asking this question, why are we here? What went wrong? And so what Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel is, it's one of the biggest books actually in the Old Testament. It's one vision after another. And in chapter 10, the very first vision, Ezekiel sort of time travels, if, as it were. Also, he, he's in a vision and he goes back in time to see what happened. And it's a story of destruction. And it says that 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 basically God, in His form of glory, this physical manifestation, leaves through the east gate out of the temple. And it's this picture of exile. God has left. It's just a building now. But God is no longer with His people. And they're now given over into exile in Babylon. And this is where we come to this passage here. This is what, what has happened as it were. Now, what I've been doing every week is trying to describe to you what is glory. Really answering that question, what is glory? You know, glory is a word that we say, I say, glory, right? Uh, Miss Glory is here. I saw her. Uh, you're even named for that. We sing Gloria in the highest Latin, right? But what does glory actually mean, right? And so every week I've been trying to kind of help us look at it from different angles because it's kind of an abstract thing. And so, so having had that kind of that background of what's going on with Ezekiel, let me start here with understanding that. Look at verse 2 with me. And behold, 
the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. If you were to walk outside these doors and and stop someone on the street and, and say, hey, how would you define glory? Chances are, we'll say something like this. It's kind of like radiance, isn't it? Kind of like, like, a, like a brilliant light, dazzling beauty. So they might say it's something that in and of itself is beautiful and dazzling, but also because of it, it radiates and reveals other glory. And in a sense, what, what Ezekiel in this vision here, he says the earth shone with his glory. And so it begins to tell something about, about the nature of glory. It reveals, it's brilliant, it radiates, as it were. But it's not just that. There's a, if I had to choose one word in the English language, you know, I mentioned this last week, the Hebrew word is kavod. But if I had to choose, choose a word, a synonym uh, in the English language for, for what glory can be defined as, it's matter. And so, so we know this in the physical sciences, that, that what is material has weight to it. It matters, we might say. But of course, the scriptures aren't as much focused on the physical material universe as they are the immaterial, the spiritual universe. And we also use the word matter to describe that. We talk about things that matter in our lives, right? We talk about things that, and what are we saying when we say things matter to us? We're saying things that are significant to us, things that have worth to us, that have weight in our lives. And so one of the things that we see here is that that when we think about glory, it's not just dazzling radiance, but it's something that matters. But here's the third and last thing I think brings the definition into its fullness, as it were. And that is, it is a word of comparison, what do you mean by that? Well, 30 years ago, there's a movie called Grand Canyon. I don't know if anyone saw it. I see a few people say, okay, you know, it wasn't exactly a blockbuster, but man, it's a really profound movie in my opinion. Okay, my humble opinion, right? And it had an ensemble cast, Kevin Kline, Mary Louise Parker, Danny Glover, one of my favorite actors of all time. And they, they play these characters, they're strangers to each other initially, but, but through a series of circumstances and events, they end up connecting with each other. And, and the whole movie is about significance and worth. How do we find it? And, and so they're answering the question, like, what, what does it mean to have value in the world? And, and they're seeking it. And there's this, this uh, and various scenes going on, but there's this one scene in particular where Kevin Klein's character, he's an immigration lawyer by the name of Mac. And, and, and Simon, Danny Glover's character, he's a tow truck operator. And, and Mac, in his nice, be- uh, beautiful, new BMW, has broken down in a really bad part of L.A. just came out of a Lakers game uh, where the movie begins. And, and there they are, and, and, and then this gang comes, and he's about to be assaulted, and his car is about to be taken, and he had called for a tow truck, and Simon suddenly comes up and, and basically rescues him rescues him from the gang and so mac owes his life in a sense he he believes at least and so this one scene in particular they're they're sitting at max uh, max simon's garage where he takes the car and they're sitting down talking getting to know each other and they're talking about the city and and it's and it's uh, it's grit and it's grime and it's darkness and how people are just trying to get by and they're looking for significance and right then simon says hey man have you ever been to the grand canyon and, and Max's like, oh, I've always wanted to go. He goes, that's just nine hours away. You can still do it, you know, and you should get yourself there. And he says, I went. And he said, man, have you ever stood on the edge of the Grand Canyon? And, uh, and 
you know, I was thinking about because I've been there. At the time, I saw the movie first. I hadn't been there. But within years later, Kirsten and I went. And, man, I don't know if you've been to the Grand Canyon. But if you've stood on the lip of the Grand Canyon, just like Simon was talking about, it's an almost spiritual experience. This massive chasm. And in, in, in the scene in the movie, uh, Simon's trying to describe it to Mac. And he says, hey, man, he says, you know, when you're standing on the lip of the Grand Canyon, it makes you feel so insignificant. You see just how small you are. And then he says, I feel sometimes like I'm on the, a gnat on the back of a cow as a car's whizzing by at 70 miles per hour. I'm a nothing compared to the Grand Canyon. And, and though I would disagree that we're, we're nothing, in fact, quite the opposite. It's a paradox. Because of the comparison, because of how glorious he is, because of how significant, how weighty, how much he matters, we actually, because we're made in the image of God, we actually have glory. And so one of the things, I, I think I mentioned this last week, that as, as we see his glory, as we connect to his glory, as we see how magnificent he is because we're made in his image, we experience glory. We experience significance. We experience matter. We experience worth, right? So what happens when we look somewhere else? I mentioned this last week. What happens? Well, uh, there's an article I read several years ago, and it was, uh, the, the author was looking at, at professional athletes and, and uh, people who are in p- positions to perform at elite levels. So he mentions not just athletes, but others who are kind of at the top of their game. And, and the article was, was entitled, um, How Your Professional Life Will Be Over Before You Think It Will Be. And, and so he was talking about all these people who are at the top of their game of success and achievement. And uh, I want to just read this portion. It's from the Atlantic Monthly, if you're familiar with that magazine. Arthur Brooks is the journalist. And listen to what he says. Why might former elite performers have such a hard time? No academic research has yet proved this, but I strongly suspect that the memory of remarkable ability, if that is the source of one's self-worth, might for some provide an invidious contrast to a later less remarkable life. Unhappy is he who depends on success to be happy. Alex Diaz Ribeiro, a former Formula One race car driver, once wrote, For such a person... The end of a successful career is the end of the line. His destiny is to die of bitterness or to search for more success in other careers and to go on living from success to success until he falls dead. In this case, there will not be life after success. He's saying that, that if you seek glory, if you seek matter, what matters horizontally instead of vertically, you'll get exactly what you paid for. We talked about that a little bit last week. And let me tell you, you can see this happening right now. You know where, where you can see it right now? Tom Brady. Now, uh, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. You're not into sports. And I don't usually use a lot of sports illustrations, but I am going to this morning. Tom Brady was crushing it with the New England Patriots, right? He won all these Super Bowls. No one's won won more Super Bowls than Tom Brady. And then they think, oh, it's over for him. He goes to the Tampa Bay Bucks, and surprise, they win a Super Bowl with Brady. And the guy is older than the hills, and he's playing professional football. I mean, no one is older than Tom Brady and playing professional football, right? And so for years now, probably like the last 10 years, people have been saying, man, Time to retire. Go out on top. But what did Brady do this past year? Right? He decided to come back. 
And, and what happened? Now, there's the whole issue with his marriage. And, and uh, evidently that was in part because he decided to come back. And eventually he ends up in a divorce. She divorces him, Giselle does, for that reason. But what is, I think, so significant is that as the quarterback for the Bucks, he's losing game after game this season. He has passed his prime, finally. He has passed his prime, evidently. But what you see is, uh, I've been watching these videos of what's been happening on the sidelines. Have you been seeing what's been happening on the sidelines after the game or during the game? He, is, he has lost his you-know-what. And he is excoriating his teammates. Um, I mean, he is going after them. And this, this rage is really the better word, not even anger, but this rage because he can't control what he perceived to be his destiny. That is success. Now, that's Tom Brady. And, you know, you don't feel too bad for him because he's making millions upon millions of dollars. But it's the story of our lives. You know, we may not be professional football players, but all of us in whatever skill set we have, we're going we're to come to the pinnacle of our success. Some of you would probably say, I'm already there and I'm already over. I've retired, unlike Tom Brady, <laughs> that sort of thing like that. But for most of us in here, you know, you're going to come to a pinnacle. And the question is, you're going to find out then, or you're going to be able to answer the question, where's my glory? And, and, and what I want to suggest is that just like on the, the shores of the canal on the Euphrates River in Babylon, when we come to those places and we come up short, and we see that, that the glory did not deliver the goods, we're in exile. Because it's misery. When I, when I watch those videos of Tom Brady, that's misery. I don't care how much money he makes. That is misery to live a life like that. Right? And, and we've all been there to a certain degree, feeling that misery, the exile. What is it exile from? It's exile from other people, excoriating them or just staying away. Uh, anger towards ourself, distance and exile from God. And that's why I said this story of exile is our story. This story of pursuit of glory is our story as well. But look, here's the good news. The glory returns to the temple. And that's what chapter 43 I mean, after all these chapters of how we, you know, God's people have missed glory. There's exile. Finally, in chapter 43, there's this picture of a glory return. And it's this vision. And so that's another vision that Ezekiel's having. And this time, it's not going back in time. It's going forward in time. And as, as Ezekiel travels in this vision forward in time, he goes back to Jerusalem. And, and now, now the glory of God has returned through the same east gate that the glory left. Now the glory returns. And, it, and listen to what it says here in verse 7, the beginning part. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet where I will dwell in the midst of the people of Israel for how long? Forever. This isn't temporary. Ezekiel, in the future, my glory is going to return to the temple. And it's never going away. No more exile for you. No more being separated from my people. Now, imagine the people there in exile hearing this vision from Ezekiel, who would have written it down. And then, a couple generations later, guess what happens? They're out of exile. Where do they go? Back to J-Town, Jerusalem, right? And what do they do back in Jerusalem? They rebuild the temple. But what's missing? Do you know what the stories that those last few books chronologically in the Old Testament? They rebuild the temple. And where is God? He's not in the temple. 
That's what's really profound. I think there must have been a, a, a like a, like what is going on? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm confused. We're, we're not in exile. The temple's been rebuilt, but Ezekiel's prophecy has not come true. Why? Actually, the temple was rebuilt, but it wasn't rebuilt the way it would eventually. You know when it received kind of its magnificence once again? Because they didn't have much money, basically, to rebuild the temple. And so it was just a, a ghost of itself when they returned from exile. Do you know when it really took on magnificence under Herod, the king of Israel? And, and so this man, it took generations, by the way, to rebuild this thing. It, took, it was so big, so grandiose, it took generations to rebuild this thing. And who is ministering in the shadow of the temple? Jesus. He said, now, Scott, I've been waiting for you to say this passage is about Christmas. Well, it's about to get Christmas on you, okay? Because you know what the last words were from uh, Ezekiel? This is chapter 48, uh, verse, verse 35. The last few words here. And the name of the city, and by the way, this is the New Jerusalem. This is part of the, the last vision, looking forward to a temple that is the whole city. And he says this, and the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. You know, there's another way to say that. Emmanuel. God with us. Do you see what happened? They thought glory was in the physical manifestation of the temple. They kept waiting for the return of the temple and its glory. The glory returned in Jesus. It took on flesh. And Jesus himself, early in his ministry, points this out in John chapter 2. He's in another tiff with a religious establishment. Go figure. And, and this is what is said there. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple. He's in the shadow of that massive, magnificent temple. Destroy this temple. And in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And you will raise it up in three days? I love verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Where is the temple gone? Where, where is God's manifestation? Where is God's fullness on display? Where is God's glory on display? That's why John in chapter 1, verse 14, listen, he says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt. Eugene Peterson's transliteration, transliteration, he tabernacled, he templed among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Don't you see, this passage in Ezekiel is all about Christmas. Because it's saying that Christmas is about the temple. Christmas is about Jesus taking on flesh, incarnation, Emmanuel, God with us. But, but he's hardly done. The scriptures are hardly done. Because it's not just about the first coming, right? It's about the second coming. Jesus has come at Christmas, but he's coming again. So Advent is not just a celebration that Jesus came in the past, but it's a celebration of the Jesus who's to come. And what is God doing in the midst? How is that possible? Well, Jesus could only come back if he left. Remember, this is Acts chapter 1. This is the ascension on the other side of the resurrection. And you remember what Jesus says? The disciples are saying, where are you going and why, most importantly, are you going? And he says, I must go. Why? So that I can send the Holy Spirit. And, and remember what happens in chapter 2. 
right? Pentecost and the giving of the Holy Spirit. And remember, what was the sign that, that the Holy Spirit had come upon the people? Do you remember what that sign was? Tongues of fire. It was Shekinah. That's the Hebrew. It's Shekinah glory. The glory of God was descending now. No longer was it in one person, Jesus Christ. Now, through the Holy Spirit, God was coming to His people. Emmanuel, God with us. The name of the city is the Lord is all here, and I will never forsake my people. I'm here forever. It's permanent. How is He coming? The Holy Spirit giving the presence of God. No wonder Paul picks up on this. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Which leads us now to the last thing I want to say. And that's because the glory of God has returned, we get to enjoy it. Right before that, I should have said this already. This is, this is what Ezekiel 43, the second half of verse 7 says, And the house of Israel shall no more defile my holy name. Because the Holy Spirit has come, do you not know that God's Spirit lives within you? Now we get to live consecrated lives. Now we get to practice the sacredness of worship. Like we're about to take the table here. We're about to take the consecrated meal. And we're going to talk about how Jesus comes into the temple. Right? This is where, where Jesus belongs in the Holy of Holies. And now, no longer do you have to go to a building. Now, the temple is gathered in us. Which means what? Well, the very remember, what is the point of the temple? The dwelling place. You belong to me. Live a holy life. This passage is about Christmas, y'all. And, and, and the only question that remains here as we prepare this week for Christmas is how do we practice Christmas? And we think, oh, Christmas, it's the singing of the songs, and it's the opening of the presents. And yes, it's, that's certainly one of the joys of Christmas, but is that truly what enjoyment of Christmas is? No. It's that we get to practice Christmas all year long because God is with us permanently, forever. And what is it that, that the, the Magi do? Remember there at the feet of Jesus, wrapped in swaddling clothes, they bow. They bow. See, Christmas... The practice of, of the Holy Spirit in our hearts is saying, Jesus, you will be enthroned upon my heart. You are the Lord of my life. You're, you're more than a teacher. You're more than prophet. You're more than a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. But you are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords over my life. Which means what? It means that every day of our lives, we get to practice Christmas like the Magi by bowing down and saying, I give you my sexuality. You know, as a, as a single man or as a single woman or as a married man or as a married woman, to practice within the designs that God has given us our sexuality. You will be enthroned in my life through my finances. I will practice using my pocketbook in a way to bring, to bring glory to your name by, by leveraging my wealth as you call me to on behalf of others. It is in our ethics. It is in our relationships with a boyfriend, girlfriend, a husband, father, uh, um, a friend, a co-worker, a parent or a child, and saying that and how I practice it, how I practice repentance and forgiveness will be a consecration, saying, Holy Spirit, come and cleanse the temple. You see, every day is a practice of Christmas because it's a practice of holiness. Emmanuel, God is with us. Do you not know that, that God's Spirit temples, He dwells within you? This is what is so profound about Christianity, friends is that no longer is about going to a building, though we should gather as we do for worship, temple together, gather together. 
Andrew Murray put it this way, a pastor theologian, to find the answer, we must allow God to search our lives. We might ask ourselves, am I in the condition in which God can fill me with His Spirit? Being filled with the Spirit is simply this. The whole personality is yielded to His power. Another way to put that is that God is more weighty. God matters more than anything else. All right, Scott, great. But what does that have to do with joy exactly? Listen, when you live according to His design, you can't help but live and drink and marinate joy. And joy is not the same thing necessarily as happiness. As I've said that before, it's not dependent upon your circumstances, but it's living according to design and saying it is well with my soul. Now, I know a lot of our kids are upstairs and I only see a few around here, right? But I want to say this to the kids. I see some of the bowling kids and uh, Dole's kids. And uh, man, Christmas morning's going to be fun, right? You know, there's going to be some presents to open up. And, and you know this, right? You know this, that, that when you open that present, and it works according to its design, you're going to experience a lot of joy on Christmas Day. But what happens if it doesn't work? What, what if, it, what if uh, Dad forgets to put the batteries in? Or what's worse, it doesn't work and you have to take it back, but nothing's open on Christmas Day, so you're going to have to wait. What do you feel? Anxiety? Stress, maybe? You don't feel joy. But you see, you see when, when things work the way they're supposed to, right, it brings joy. And that's when our lives work the way they're supposed to, when we live according to that design, man, you know? And, and so I want to ask you here to close. How might Jesus be enthroned upon your heart here at the holiday? What is there a part of your life right now? Has the Holy Spirit brought anything to your attention as I've been preaching? Is there something that, that God, because the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, says, I, I, want, I want him to be enthroned Upon your heart here. Yes, you're doing it over here, but I want this part of your life to be enthroned. I want the whole, I want, as Murray said, I want your whole self to be yielded unto me. And so my, my prayer for us as a congregation is, yes, we will we'll worship well with singing of the songs. And, and, and the classic passages, we're going to do that on Christmas Eve. No more of these weird non-Christmas Christmas passages. We're going to, on, we're going to do it really well. Luke chapter 1 and 2 on uh, Christmas Eve. So get ready. Uh, but, 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 know that he must be enthroned upon your heart. He must temple there. So may he do that here at Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for, for the message of Christmas in a very unlikely spot. Thank you for uh, just allowing us to see more clearly what the whole point of the temple was. That, 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 that every person in the Old Testament lived in the shadow of, of the temple, it was more weighty, it was more grandiose, it was more magnificent than anything else in their world. And so it may be for us New Testament people that the temple is more weighty, more glorious, more magnificent than anything else in the world. Jesus, may you be enthroned, throned in our hearts in the temple. May it be, Holy Spirit, you in the Holy of Holies that we celebrate. And may we live a life through our sexuality and our finances and our ethics and, and so much more. May we live a life in such a way that people see glory. That people say, I want to come and worship. I want to know the God of the temple. I don't want to know the God of, of grandiose magnificence. I want to know the God of glory. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, Emmanuel. Amen.